we're in Matthew 27, uh, and um, <clears throat> during this time, we're going to pick up at about verse uh, 17, and I'm probably going to travel maybe about 13 verses. I think that's about as far as I can get to today as we look at these things a little bit more in depth. Um, but as I begin, uh, Jesus now has been brought before Pontius Pilate. Uh, Matthew kind of cuts trial four and trial six. Uh, he, there's two different trials. He puts them in here, it seems like one, but in between there would be a trial where, he, where Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and Herod just wants to see Jesus do some tricks, and Jesus won't do it, and he sends him right back. Pilate thought he was done with Jesus, thought he was out of the situation, but he wasn't. And so now he gets desperate, and he's desperate, and he he brings in Barabbas. Now, let me back up in the story because I saved some things for this week so I could at least intro uh, these ideas. Um, <clears throat> first off, why do the Jews bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate? Well, we find out from other Gospels that um, they make a statement to Pontius Pilate saying, you know, you know, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Translation? Uh, we can't carry out capital punishment. It's interesting because <clears throat> what happened was about three years earlier than this trial, uh, the, the uh, ability to carry out capital punishment by the Jews in their own country was taken away from them by the Romans. That's why they're coming to Pontius Pilate. When it was taken away three years earlier, the priests, who basically are the head honchos in the country, they went out into the streets and, and they were screaming and yelling things like, God has forsaken us. Shiloh has not come. What does that mean? Well, you see, there's a scripture back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 7. It says that, uh, you know, the scepter will never depart from uh, Judah until Shiloh comes. So they fully expected Shiloh, the Messiah, to come, and they would never lose authority power. So when they lost the authority to carry out capital punishment, they interpreted it as that, that it's been taken away from us. The scepter and Shiloh's not here. God has failed us is what they're saying. But what's fascinating about it is it's three years earlier when it happens, Jesus was already in the midst. He was already embarking in his ministry. So God never failed them. And the scripture is true, and Jesus is walking the earth. That's one thing I want to share with you. Another thing is this. There's a, a letter that was written. I want to give you a little bit of Pilate's character so that we can kind of build a case for why in the world is he acting the way he's acting. This is a, a piece of a letter written from Agrippa to Caligula. If you know anything about history, Caligula, oh my gosh, he's a crazy man, this guy. Young guy in the 20s, crazy, crazy Roman Empire, emperor. And Agrippa writes in this letter about Pilate. He says this about Pontius Pilate. Pilate is unbending and recklessly hard. He is a man of notorious reputation, severe brutality, prejudice, savage, violence, and murder. Now... You, you start to think, this, this guy is one tough cookie. But he's not a tough cookie when Jesus comes before him. He bends all kinds of pressure. Why? 
Why does he go from this really tough, rough, gruff, violent, mean guy to a guy that seems like he's waffling back and forth and finding to, trying to weasel the way out of this thing? Let me tell you why. Because when Pilate first came to uh, Judea's governor, he came in with these standards. The soldiers were carrying standards and they had an idol on top. I think it was an eagle or something. can't remember off the top of my head. I just went blank, but that's an idol. Oh, Jerus the Jerusalemites and the people, the Jews, they went nuts because that's an idol. And riots broke out everything. That was kind of strike one for Pilate. And then he decides, I'm going to do a good deed for the Jews. He wants to build an aqueduct, build, bring water into the city. Well, he runs out of money. So what does he do for money? Goes into the temple treasury, the Jewish temple treasury, takes money, riots break out, once again gets back to Rome. That's strike two. And then... They make these shields for the Roman soldiers, and they have, they have the Emperor Caesar's image on there. Well, that's idolatry, too. You don't make an image, and riots break out. He's trying to squelch it, gets back to Rome again, strike three. So now Rome has told him, one more strike, one more thing that you can't control, and you're out. Guess who knows that? The priests who are bringing... Jesus to Pilate. So now Pilate, this rough, tough, reckless, violent, mean guy who doesn't put up with anything, now he's afraid for his position. He's lame duck now, and they know it. And that's why we don't see his true character here. We see him change into a man who's shaken in his boots, a man who's not going to do the right thing. We already know they're bringing false testimony against Jesus. We already know they're lying about Jesus. Pilate himself is going to admit, I find no fault in the guy. But he's bending to their pressure. Now let's pick up that story now. Verse 17, Matthew 27. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Hmm. Now let's stop here for a second because now Pilate is pulling out a custom. It's a custom that they could release someone at the Passover. It's kind of a trade-off type thing. And so they're bringing in this guy. Um, and so they're going to go with custom when we know that Barabbas is an insurrectionist murderer from other Gospels. They're going to go with custom over law. Well, that's a dangerous place to be when you start going with some new custom and some customs over law. But that's what they're going to go with. But here's what's fascinating about it, is that notice the phraseology that Pilate uses when he talks about Barabbas and Jesus. He says, who should I release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? He's making distinction between the two, but here's why. You remember when Jesus talks to Peter, and Peter's name was Simon, and he's a Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar, son of Jonah, John. Simon, son of John, Bar-Jonah. When Pilate talks about Barabbas, he calls him Barabbas, Bar-Abbas. Son of Abba, son of his father. Hmm. He doesn't give his first name. But when he turns to Jesus, he says, or Jesus, who is called the Christ. 
Why doesn't he give Barabbas first name? Why does he call him just son of his father? Well, there's some writings, way ancient writings that, that state that Barabbas' first name was none other than Jesus. You go, come on, no. Jesus was a very common name. Very common name in that day. His name was Jesus Barabbas. So Pilate says, you want Barabbas or this Jesus, whom you know, they call him the Christ. Christ meaning anointed one, meaning your Messiah or the Messiah. So it's interesting you have Jesus, the son, Barabbas, the son of his father, and Jesus, the son of the father in heaven. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that wild? It's awesome, man. Now, verse 18. <clears throat> For he knew, Pilate knows something. He knows something. He knew that because of envy they had handed him over. He knows that they've delivered Jesus up because they're envious. So what it really means is this. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows it. But he also knows the motivation of these priests and leaders of the community, they're envious because why? Because Jesus is really getting popular and he doesn't stand for what's been established for decades and they want to just status quo it and Jesus comes in and he rips everything apart and he's redoing stuff the way God intended it to be. And they don't like it because they want their position and they like what they like. And Jesus comes and says, and he's changed it all. So they're envious of him, so they're bringing him up on trumped-up charges. Now, verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat. Mm, he's sitting on the judgment seat. Pilate's sitting on the judgment seat, but he will not carry out justice. Yikes. Bad. Now watch this. While he's sitting there, and he's waffling back and forth, and he wants a way out of this thing. And he's trying to figure out, he's already sent Jesus away to Herod. Herod sends him back. And I'm like, oh my gosh. It says, his wife sent him a message. Now guys, when you get a message from your wife, you better read that message. Even if you're in the middle of the biggest trial of the century. The message says this. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. What? His own wife calls Jesus righteous. Meaning, have nothing to do with that innocent guy. That guy's innocent. Let me put it my, my own words to her. Babe, don't, 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 don't convict this guy. He's innocent. Leave it alone. And then the, the little letter adds, for last night. In other words, she just woke up probably. Because it's early. It's like 6.30 in the morning now. She says, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Now stop. Before you brush over it fast, you got to kind of meditate on that for a second. She, have you ever had a dream so vivid, so, um, um, uh, uh, it just aroused you so much that you had to warn the person the dream was about? I've never had that happen. But she has a dream. And the dream is so vivid, so real, and has to do with Jesus. She sends a message, honey, this dream I had, da, da, da. And what, what does she say in the dream? In my dream, I suffered greatly concerning him. What could she have suffered? What, what's going on? Well, you've got to think about it. Did she see Jesus in glory? 
Did she see Jesus on the cross, you know, dying for humanity and the, and the centurion repenting? Did you see the aftermath, or during the cross, I should say, when the sky goes dark and the earthquake after he dies? Did she see that? Did she see Jesus rise from the dead? What was in that dream? That it so stirred her, she says, I've got to warn my husband, have nothing to do with this, this bogus trial. Get away from it. Get away from it, honey. Verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Ah, now, <clears throat> so they got the crowds all wound up, the mob. I got a question. Earlier in the week, weren't they singing Hosanna? <laughs> oh, God save us? Weren't they having a great old time as Jesus rides into Jerusalem? Oh, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord. And now it's like, crucify him. Isn't that weird? Crowd, people are fickle, to be honest with you. Anybody who's lived any length of time, you know, so certain people are just fickle. But I think it's a little deeper than that here. Um, see, there's two... There's two types of people in Israel. You've got the, the higher-ups, the very wealthy. They have lots of money. They live in their mansions and the high towers. and They have all that. That's the priests. That's all these. They were, they were rich people. But then, and those are the ones who stirred the mob up of those people to yell out, crucified. The ones who were yelling, Hosanna, a few days earlier, they're what's called the Aaretz. They're the people of the land. They're the common people. They're the farmers. They make up 85% of Israel at that time. The filthy rich make up the 15%. And so it's the, the rich ones that are screaming, crucify, because they want to get them out of there. It's the poor people, the, the lower class, the Aretz. They're the ones who yell, Hosanna, oh God save us. Save us, Jesus. You're bringing about a revolution that we want. Now, verse 21. But the governor said to them, it was Pontius Pilate, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Now, in John 18, it says they're yelling Barabbas. They're just yelling this out loud. Now, I want you to think about a little, let me give you a side note. Just interesting fun fact. Doesn't this prefigure our future on earth where they're rejecting the peaceful son of his father, Jesus Christ, and they're accepting this violent son of his father, Barabbas, the future of our earth. We're in, the, we're in our end time series right now. Read Revelation. They reject Jesus Christ, these earth dwellers. And they're accepting the son of his father, the Antichrist, who is the son of the devil, while rejecting Jesus Christ, the son of his father, God. This prefigures that. It's what's going to happen in the tribulation period. <clears throat> now, verse, um, verse 22. Pilate said to them, Here's his question. Then what 
shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. Okay, wait a minute here. Notice the question. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Isn't that the question? Isn't that the question that everyone has to answer in their life? What am I going to do with Jesus? Am I going to accept him? Am I going to put my faith in him as God in the flesh? Or am I going to reject him? Am I going to deny God even exists? Or am I going to stay a skeptic all my life? What am I going to do? What are we going to do with Jesus? That's what Pilate asked them. That's what the Spirit of God, through the evangelism of Christians, asks everyone. Verse 23. And he said, here's Pilate. When they said crucify him, here's Pilate's next question. Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. Now stop and think of this verse, what's going on here. Pilate is asking the question, what's the evidence that he's even done anything wrong? None. Zero. There's no evidence. But look what they say. But they kept shouting the more, Crucify him. In other words, what's going on here? We have no proof of guilt, but just crucify him. Get him out of here. That's what they're saying. Pilate sits there as a lame duck governor. He knows the man's innocent. He knows there's no evidence. He knows it's false charges. He knows it's all these things, but he's a lame duck. And they just shout louder and louder and louder, and the mob gets louder and louder and louder. Hmm. Be careful for loud, loud people. Well, the more you listen to them, the more they yell, pretty soon you might believe it. you got to ask for evidence of anything. Um, <clears throat> verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing. Why does he say that? Or why is it written, when Pilate saw, I'm accomplishing nothing. Now think of what's going on. He's asking, what's the evidence? Crucify him! What's the evidence? Just crucify him! What's really going on here? Let me tell you what that means. You can't reason with a mob. You can't reason with an angry person. They don't even make sense. They're not going to sit down calmly and dialogue and give you evidence of anything. They're just going to get angry and loud. That's all they're going to do. That's, and it accomplishes nothing. And Pilate sees it's going nowhere. So in verse 24, it says, accomplishing nothing, but rather, here's the key, that a riot was starting. Remember, what can he not afford anymore? Another riot. Because it's three strikes for the guy already with, with, with the emperor here in, back at Rome, with him leading Judea. He says, I, if, I, if they have another strike against me, I lose my job. I lose my position. And I like my position, so I got to find a way to weasel out of this thing. Here's what he does. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Caves are the pressure. But where is he pulling this symbolic gesture of washing his hands and then stating, I'm innocent of this man's blood? Deuteronomy chapter 21. 
Deuteronomy chapter 21. There's a little thing tucked in here. This is probably what he's referring to. He's just finding, trying to find a way out. Verse 6, but you could start with verse 1, but we don't have time for that. It says, All the elders of that city, which is nearest the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. The whole idea of these six, seven, seven verses here, but I just read the one, is this. If they found a slain dead man outside a city, and no one knows who did it, they would eventually, the city nearest the slain man, all the elders of the city would come up and have to wash their hands and thus declaring, I didn't commit the crime. Pilate seems to be drawing back on that, saying, I'm not committing a crime here. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm innocent. I'm, I'm letting go. Look, he's not innocent because he's going to let them have their way. And, and they're, they're false charges. You couldn't prove one of them. So he washes his hands. I'm innocent of this man's blood. Now watch what they say. And all the people said, listen, his blood, meaning Jesus' blood, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Bad, bad move. Oh my gosh. You have to wonder if the effects or some of the effects of all the things that are going to happen now from this moment on in the future of Israel might be as a result of that. I don't know. But they sure uttered a bad, bad curse, didn't they? Mm-mm-mm. Verse 26. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Okay, we got to stop here for a second. This is a loaded verse again. Okay. Barabbas is in a cell inside the fortress of Antonia where they're at here, the praetorium, the barracks, Pilate's home when he was in Jerusalem. And there's a barracks of 300 to 600 men, something like that. He's down in a cell. They hear people screaming, Crucify! Crucify! He can hear it. But he cannot hear Pilate saying, Well, whom should I release for you? Barabbas or this Jesus? They scream, Barabbas! Barabbas! Think of what he's listening to. He hears, Crucify! Crucify! Barabbas! Barabbas! So what does he think is going to happen to him that day? They're going to crucify me today. This is it. Because I am a murderer and insurrectionist. And so here's the soldiers coming down toward his cell. He says, this is it. They open up the cell. And they say, you're free to go. What? Jesus, his life is given for a murderer and an insurrectionist. Just like his life was given for all of our transgressions and sins. He says, I've never murdered, Jim. Well, you've thought some ugly things, right? Jesus said, same as murder. You've thought ugly things toward people and so have I. He dies in our place. 
You know that cross in the middle of that day, you know, who it was reserved for, really? It was Barabbas, not for Jesus. But Jesus is going to take that spot. Now, verse 26, it says now, they scourge him. Okay, the lictor comes in. This gentleman, he's called a lictor, takes a flagellum and long stick about so long, round, leather tongs on the end of that thing. In the leather tongs, you have pieces of metal and glass at the end. And Jesus would be stripped naked, tied to a post, and they're coming down him. They're running all the way up and down his back, back of his legs, etc. And as they start digging in, first he starts welling up with welts. Pretty soon it starts cutting, digging it across his body. And pretty soon it's grabbing hold of his skin and ripping back. And pretty soon as they keep beating down and beating down, because listen, the Jews were only allowed to whip a man 40 times. So they would, they would whip a man, they counted 39. Because they didn't want to break, go past 40, because they don't want to break the law. Not the Romans, they could care less. They could care less, man. That's why the Romans, when they scourged, they counted, they called their scourging halfway death. And if a man passed out, they would just take salt water and throw it on his back and wake him back up again. That's what they would do. Just keep, keep it going, man. Keep it going. You know, at a certain point, Jesus' back from all the scourging would now be open. You could see his inner organs and the flesh of his back would be hanging like ribbons. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's just too gruesome to explain. That's why they say, and he was scourged. And he was scourged. And he's there naked. Wow. And then they hand him over to be crucified. If scourging was bad, and it was. It's going to get real bad now. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the Roman cohort around him. Now, i got to stop because there's a verse, that's just the hypocrisy of humanity. Look at John chapter 18 and verse 28. John 18, verse 28. And um, 18, 28 adds a little a little pepper here to the, to the story. It says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas. The Jews are leading Jesus. This is another little aspect in the story. Into the praetorium, where it's in the Roman barracks, in the fortress of Antonia. And it was early, notice, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not defy, be defiled but might eat the Passover. <laughs> what a bunch of hypocrites. I, I can't step in there because it's Gentile territory. I'll defile myself and I can't celebrate the Passover. i got to remain holy and clean. They've just delivered a man on false charges, lies, brought in false witnesses. They won't even show, they can't show any evidence, but I don't want to defile myself because, you know, I'm holy. I'm a good religious person. What hypocrisy. <laughs> it's just hypocrisy. Lives to this day, doesn't it? So, verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Oh, man. The word that Matthew uses for, um, for robe, because they stripped Jesus naked. 
The word for robe is, Greek word is klenos. It means a robe over the shoulders and goes about the elbows. He's in a Roman barracks. It's all these soldiers. Jesus stand there naked. And they put a little robe over him to the elbows. And they leave the bottom of his body exposed. Just humiliating God in the flesh. He took your shame, my friend. He took your shame so you wouldn't have to walk in shame. He took your shame. They put a scarlet robe on him. It's scarlet color. Verse 29, And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now they're mocking him. Who knows the ugly things they must have been saying besides all this that they didn't want to write down here. He's in a Roman's barrack, Roman barracks. I think I'm going to have to end on this first because the next thing I'd like to say after what I'm going to say right now would take a little bit longer and I wouldn't be able to give it the time. I'll intro with that next time. But they twist together a crown of thorns. Now, you have to ask yourself uh, uh, the question, where they find that at? Where they find this vine with thorns? At? And by the way, these thorns are about two and a half, three inches long. They're pretty long. They're little, little thorns. They're long. Where would they find that at? Well, what would happen is they would um, they would take these thorns and they they'd have these long vines of thorns and they would have these actual baskets in different places in the city. And when these thorns dried out, they would take them and use them as kindling to start fires. So you could find it around all these places. So it was not hard to find one of these containers with these thorns. That's where they got it. They weave a crown of thorns. They press it into his head. And they mock him. They put a reed in his hand. I'll talk about that in Troy next week. They put a reed in his hand. Hail, King of the Jews. A crown of thorns. Why do we as Christians want things so easy all the time? Our Lord took a crown of thorns. We want a crown of roses. You can't have the roses without the thorns. The thorns think. When Adam and Eve sin, what is one of the dysfunctional negative effects now on planet Earth as a result of sin? Plants would grow thorns. Plants didn't have thorns before that. So what's the significance? The thorns were a result of the curse as a result of sin. Jesus taking thorns upon him meaning means this. He is reversing the curse of sin upon our lives. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Galatians chapter 3 teaches us that. And he hung on that tree, hung on that cross with those thorns. And here he begins another step in reversing the curse upon our life so that he could give us life and that more abundantly. Don't waste it, friend. Don't waste it. I'm going to stop there. That's good enough for today. Hope, you, hope it blessed you, and um, we'll pick up the story next week. So I'll see you Sunday. We're going to be talking on the rapture of the church. See you later.